the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, shamanic out-of-body experiences and 102-grain 380 loads and what they have to do with vampires, plus part 36 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with Marcus Wynn, the author of new contemporary fantasy, The Sword of Michael. Marcus is a character. He's a former air marshal, a military and police tactical consultant, and something of a practitioner of modern shamanic arts himself, just like his hero in the book. We had a wide-ranging and pretty dang metaphysical discussion on the book, life, and all manner of things, and that's coming up. And we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. Now here's the news. Ho, 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 ho. Ho, 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 the holidays are here. And what could be a better gift than a multi-character superhero epic? Or a private eye returning to the mean planetary streets of her youth? And or a pattern-integrating werewolf hunter whose best friend is a vampire? Not much else, that's what. Maybe world peace. Maybe. Now out in hardcover is Collision, book four in the Secret World Chronicle by Mercedes Lackey and her merry cohorts. We follow the meta-heroes as they take on totalitarians, secret Nazi conspiracies, perfidious capitalist conspiracies, and more. Also out of booksellers is Undercity by Catherine Acero. This is a novel set in her Scolian Empire, and it's a rather gritty part of the empire indeed. Soldier-turned-P.I. Major Bajan sets out to find a kidnapped prince and ends up dipping into an underworld she thought she'd escaped when she joined the military and got away from the mean streets. This is a good one, and I was involved with the editing of it as well. And out at Booksellers Everywhere is Paradigm's Lost by Reich E. Spohr. This is an almost total rewrite of his first novel, Digital Night, but it's really a new book. In it, an investigator uses computers and pattern recognition abilities to track supernatural threats. It also has a cool take on the origin of vampires and werewolves. They have an ancient origin indeed in the book. Collision, Undercity, and Paradigm's Lost are at booksellers everywhere. Get them, stocking stuff with them, or just hoard them to sneak away to and read when the holiday madness gets to be a bit too much. I want to welcome Marcus Wynn to the podcast. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Sure. Marcus Wynn is the author of multiple Amazon ebook bestsellers, including Contemporary Thrillers, No Other Option, Warrior in the Shadows, Brother in Arms, as well as With a Vengeance, Johnny Wilde, and Air Marshals. Marcus is a charter member of the Been There, Done That Club, he says. He's got all the t-shirts and knows all the secret handshakes. He enjoys poetry, ballet, knife fighting, serial monogamy with fierce feminists, Man, <laughs> I got to ask you about all of this, but let me let me say the book. Uh, Marcus is also the author of *The Sword of Michael*, a contemporary fantasy novel now out at booksellers everywhere. So obviously, there are other aspects to your life. Um, 
you were an air marshal, weren't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, just a couple of things backing up on the bio, you know, is that uh, while I have had a bunch of Amazon bestsellers, my first three books were with Tor. Right. Uh, they were thrillers, and uh, first two did really well. And then uh, I got uh, cancer and was sidelined for some time. And so I started uh, publishing ebooks, which went, did really well. And so Sword of Michael is kind of my uh, toe back into the waters of traditional publishing and uh, checking that out. So that part's all good. So Air Marshal, yeah, man, I was uh, uh, Air Marshal during the first Gulf War. Um, kind of interesting. After I got out of the uh, Army, I worked in um, uh, professional protection, like VIP protection. And I worked for a company that was run by the former head of training for the Special Air Service from the U.K. And um, we used to do training for the military and law enforcement and conducted protection stuff all over the world. And uh, we trained some of the cadre from the air marshal program. And they invited me uh, to uh, essentially to join the air marshals. So I did that in 1989. It was like right after uh, Pan Am 103 got bombed. And uh, I went in there, and I spent the first Gulf War, uh, Desert Storm and Desert Shield, flying overseas and uh, flying mar uh, work missions with the Air Marshals and some other government agencies and with uh, a lot of our elite military units um, overseas. Well, now you, um, you're you a freelance consultant, uh, are you not? Um, that's one of your many hats that you wear for, uh, I don't know, law enforcement agencies, military, that sort of thing? Is that correct? Yeah, I do all of that stuff. Um, all of that uh, previous kind of freelance stuff has been subsumed under my new company, Extensus Ludus LLC. We're a Department of Defense contractor, and we, we provide essentially training design and consultation about training design for people under high risk. Uh, some of our clients like NASA, the South African government, um, uh, uh, geez, what about Germany, uh, Sweden, Norway, uh, Israel, quite a few of those that um, have used our services for design of their uh, national police forces, and then uh, a lot of military as well, too. What's the name of that company again? It's Accentus Ludis. Uh-huh. Did you take Latin when you were in school? Yeah, but I can't remember what it means. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a lapsed Carpe boy, You know, uh, one reading of it, Accentus Ludus, means stressed school. Mm -hmm. It is also a type of um, uh, prayer that is sung in the same way that Gregorian chant was that comes out of uh, the Roman Catholic tradition. Uh -huh. And uh, so I kind of like the uh, the dual meaning in it. Well, cool. Well, let's talk about the Sword of Michael, which is a really interesting cross of noir thriller, and um, it's a book full of shamanic wisdom, <laughs> which is hard to believe comes out of a guy who's also uh, who's a um, military freelance consultant. How the heck did all these threads come together into the Sword of Michael? Well, you know, it's a good question. Um, Heather Graham who is like uh, the number one New York Times uh, urban fantasy bestseller, did me the great favor of reading the book, taking time on schedule, reading the book, and then provided me some feedback and gave me a great quote, which is on the cover of the book. And as um, a matter of fact, let me just read that. And that uh, quote on the cover is, Marcus Wynn has created a rare find, 
an action-packed book with characters filled with heart and soul. You have to keep reading and then keep to read again because the story is so rich. Now, the thing about it, one of the things that we talked about is um, she had read one of my earlier novels, uh, Warrior in the Shadows, which back in 2002 was very controversial because it was kind of a mashup of paranormal and military special operations thriller. Mm-hmm. Uh, it <laughs> it really alienated one part of my audience, which was all about the gung-ho, super hardcore military special operations thriller that had preceded that. But it opened the doors to a really big audience of people that were interested in paranormal, you know, what we would call urban fantasy today. So, um, when I was sitting there, I've been, I, I mean, I grew up with fantasy and science fiction. I always loved genre. And essentially, I wrote thrillers because, dude, you know, we got paid better for it, you know? So um, when I decided to tackle the uh, urban fantasy genre, I said, okay, what am I really interested in? And I really kind of like these um, melanges and these these mashups of different genres. I think the boundaries between genres are getting softer anyways. And, you know, I mean, you look at something like uh, the TV, what, for instance, in TV, you know, is Walking Dead or Penny Dreadful, which is one of my huge favorites. You see it in um, thriller fiction. For instance, John Connolly, who is, you know, my favorite uh, thriller author, he writes these amazing, beautifully crafted thriller novels that are also a private investigator novel that is also an extraordinary supernatural paranormal novel all at the same time, you know? So, I mean, to me, that was one of the things that I looked at. And I go, you know, I kind of like this, you know. So let me go in here and just kind of play with it. Because I was uh, honestly kind of bored with the straight-up gunfighter shoot-em-up. I mean, I've done eight novels, you know, and uh, we've got close to a million copies out there floating around between them. And, um, you know, it was, it was time to do something different. So I wanted to really kind of explore, you know, my interests in um, alternative spiritual practice and shamanism mix it up with the gunfighting stuff and all that, and just kind of see where it went. So, all right, well, then that sounds like that uh, Marius Winter, your your main character, um, who knows a lot about being a shaman, uh, comes out of some personal experience then. You're interested in such matters. Or did Marius's character grow out of that? Absolutely. You know, I mean, one of the things that uh, people have always commented on about my books is how very technically accurate they are. And essentially, it's because a long time ago, I kind of incorporated Ernest Hemingway's thing, which is write about what you know. And in a strange way, that kind of led me down this path of the, you know, wandering Ronin gunfighter for a long time. It was because I wanted to have stories to write. It was dramatic stuff, you know. So, um, you know, just the, the thumbnail sketch with it is that for me, I had a very bad bout with cancer. I had uh, nine major surgeries and I had a classic near death experience. I died during my um, a surgery. And I was down for about two minutes and I had the classic near death experience where I saw my mother and my brother who had passed away standing before this portal of brilliant white light. And um, I had a complete transformation in my experience. It was an extraordinary pain. I'd been, uh, I'd been on so much morphine, I'd become uh, physically addicted to it. And uh, so I clocked out, and um, I was literally floating down this tunnel. And telepathically, my mother and my brother said that I could choose to come down 
and I would be relieved from all my pain. So I'm moving forward into this, and I look off to my left, and there's like this big screen TV there. Hmm. On that big screen TV is a picture of my son, who was four years old at the time. And he's sitting on his bed, looking out the window, and I just knew telepathically that the way that my um, ex-wife would have chosen to deal with it was to tell him, oh, your dad just went away and he's never coming back. And I just had this incredible sense of sadness from him. And, you know, there's this part of me that said, hey, you know what? Fuck that. And uh, the next thing I knew, I woke up and I'm in the intensive care and I got <laughs> I got uh, five doctors and three nurses standing over me. And the head charge nurse in charge of the uh, ICU is looking down at me and she's grinning and she looks at me and she goes, well, do you remember what you said to me when I extubated you? And I look at her and I say, no, ma'am, I hope it wasn't anything obscene. And she looks at me and she grins. She goes, you look me right in the eye and you said, that which does not kill me makes me stronger. And she starts laughing and she pats my cheek and she goes, and you know, we love that about you, Marcus. We're going to take really, really good care of you. And they did. I was in the hospital for four months. That's a long time to spend in a hospital bed. And I was one of only two people that survived on my ward. I was in the the terminal uh, terminal ward in the hospital. So I was one of two people that actually uh, they did wheel out on a gurney out of there. Jeez Louise! Last well, three or four years. It sounds like I mean, it sounds like you had something like a shamanic journey there. Um, now, do you think that that sort of uh, you, you know back in hunter gatherer times or even now that 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 sort of mediation between the one world and the other is the basis for storytelling or modern writers kind of like shamans? Well, you know, I think that there's something to that. One of the traditional roles of the shaman is storyteller, is keeper of the stories. And in an indigenous or native tradition or oral tradition, you know, you tell stories. That's how you impart wisdom. That's how you tell things about, you gather information. That's how you communicate on a kind of uh, other than conscious level to other people. So I think that it could be. You know, I don't know, I, I don't know if I would go so far as to say that every writer is, uh, is a shaman, but I think that it is, a, it is an element of um, shamanic practice, is the art of telling story. Uh, one of the things in um, the shamanic protocol, if you will, you know, when you journey on behalf of yourself and other people, is to come back and you tell the story. You know, that's part of what you do. You go out and you journey in the other realms, and you come back and you share the story. You bring back that information. You bring back those gifts that help facilitate healing or whatever on it, you know? Well, we don't give the impression that that's all that that's in the book. There's also a lot of gun lore, and there's some uh, some great action. <laughs> well, you know, here's the thing about it is that you know my uh, thriller books are like hugely popular with the special operations uh, guys. I mean, I've got walls full of thank yous and stuff from operators all over the world, and the thing that they say is that, you know, it's nice seeing an old guy passing on his knowledge in a fictional format. I was just having this discussion with a young uh, military special operator not long ago, and he was laughing and saying, you know, yeah, this is the problem, is that you know, a lot of the time um, institutional knowledge gets lost, 
And I was talking about a friend of mine who uh, died earlier this year. One of the things that was said in his obituary was, you know, when an old man died, the library burned. And when we lost Louis Auerbach, you know, we lost Alexandria. It was like one of the great farms, tax protection. So I try to, you know, I try to keep things as accurate as possible. So, you know, in there, yes, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely accurate in terms of gunplay and the latest, you know, cool guy gear from Mayflower Nylon, you know, to all the right types of ammo and that kind of stuff. And, you know, my uh, my fan base, which is pretty significant, you know, is um, really into that. And I always take it as a point of pride that I very rarely, if ever, get any comments, you know, oh, you got the gun stuff wrong or, you know, you got the explosive stuff wrong or something like that, you know. So it's kind of good. And actually, you know, Bane has got one of the guys that, you know, is one of my oldest friends. It's one of the most seriously experienced guys in the special operations. Rob Crod is collaborating with John Ringo on the next uh, Kilbar book. And, uh, yeah, Rob is one of these guys that has forgotten more about firearms lore than 99% of the firearms experts in the country will ever know. <laughs> you know, he was the source for a long time, you know, he, on everything when it comes to military and uh, military and law enforcement type weapons. So, yeah, there's a lot of that, you know, and what was fun is to keep all the, uh, you know, weapons, farms and stuff, and then apply it in, like, you know, a paranormal-type context. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, tell us, explain Marius's uh, sort of character in his job. He um, he's, he takes cases. Um, he's sort of like a PI and sort of not. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is the challenge when you write the first book in what's supposed to be a continuing series, you know? You got to introduce the main cast of characters. You got to kind of introduce the theme. You got to kind of set up, do a lot of the world building setup in it, you know? The thing was with Marias is he is essentially, he is a freelance shamanic practitioner who specializes in depossession or exorcism. And, you know, he's got a past, which is alluded to in there, where he had, like, a regular job, you know, before he, he had done all these things. So, you know, essentially what he is is he's, uh, you know, if you're looking around, see it, he's like a New Age practitioner in the same way that a tarot card reader or a Reiki practitioner or a massage therapist or an acupuncturist is. You know, there's somebody who has a practice and people come and pay him, you know, and or in his instance, and he makes it very clear he doesn't charge. He accepts gifts, and the person makes their uh, determination on what they do, which is a very traditional approach in shamanic practice. And a lot of people in the United States don't don't see it that way. But uh, anyways, you know, so he's got that. And what happens is because of the fact that he deals with a depossession exorcism, system, he's, he's down in like the deep, dark end of the pool on the whole spectrum of shamanic practice. So, you know, there's people down there that'll adjust your auras, you know, and, you know, uh, do divination for you or, uh, you know, work on uh, your feelings of uh, anxiety and so on. And then on the far deep end, there's the people who say, oh, okay, we will go and uh, we will help you get rid of um, the spirits that are tormenting you or we will facilitate your healing and take the entities out of your body. So he's kind of down there in the dark end of it, and because of that, he attracts all kinds of attention from things on the dark and scary spectrum. Well, like a lot of shamans, he um, he has some spirit aids, um, some some spirit animals, I guess, guides. Um, there's this crow-like animal, Bert, um, 
who's great. He's like this sardonic uh, kind of bookie, Brooklyn bookie kind of that character. And the big white tiger, Tigra, I guess that's her name. Um, and she's got a great dry sense of humor. They're, they serve as great like foils for Marius, but um, at the same time, they're integral to the story, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in uh, shamanic practice, the traditional and core uh, shamanic practice, you know, there is no thing as, um, you know, the individual having power. You know, power comes from the creator and is manifest in your allies and your guides that come to you. And that, you know, serves to maintain the necessary sense of humility and the faith of all that stuff. So he's really fortunate is that he's guided and he's protected by these spirit allies, you know, and he has the two power animals as they're referred to, you know, Bert, who's the, the crow and the raven, and Tigre, who's of the tigers. And then he has an additional spirit guide who is, you know, a, uh, a Lakota medicine person. Oh, right. I forgot about him. The What's his name again? I, front in battle or... Uh... That's, a, That's right. First in front. First in All front. All his scars are on the front of his body. Right. <laughs> and cool. uh, he's a uh, Lakota um, shaman. You know, they don't use that term, the medicine man or you with it to be, uh, to be completely accurate, who is also, you know, a, a foil and a guide and, you know, one of his, uh, you know, mentors in this practice. And so um, this is part of the thing in the shamanic paradigm is that, you know, you're never alone. You're surrounded by your allies. And, you know, there are those that are seen and those that are unseen. And there are those that are seen by you and those that uh, are not. And so, you know, as uh, allies, what's cool about it from the writer's perspective is, you know, you've got constant foils to keep things interesting when action's going on. And it doesn't have to always be human and it doesn't always have to be, you know, somebody else in the story. You know, you can have this constant you know, three or four or five way conversation going on, which makes it a lot more interesting, I think, for the reader as well as for me, the writer. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Uh, speaking as someone who's done something like that in a book that I wrote with uh, Dave Drake, um, so Marius also has a human ally who is Dylan, who's this weapons expert. Um, he's highly capable. How did he hook up with um, with this? pretty spiritually based shaman, uh, the depossessionist Marius. Where's Dylan come from? Well, you know, here's the cool thing about this, and it's something that I've discovered in my own practice, is that there's this real interesting shift within, like, you know, the New Age movement. A lot of people kind of perceive it as being, you know, airy, fairy, patchouli splashing, goat skin, sandal wearing, you know, um, uh, hippies. The thing is, within that, in the world of alternative spiritual practices, specifically in the world of shamanism, there's a lot of very serious people, uh, serious guys with some pretty badass history who are in there who are working as practitioners. Jim Morris, who wrote the uh, uh, Vietnam-era Special Forces guy, wrote a classic novel, War Story. And Dan Shaman, practicing right now, working doing PTSD. Michael Jaco, one of the founding members of SEAL Team 6 under Dick Marcinko, practicing shaman, teaching intuition, vision, and past life regression. Um, that movie that just came out, Deliver Us from Evil, where, uh, what's his name, Eric Bana played uh, Ralph uh, Sachi, the really hard-ass uh, New York City cop 
who ends up uh, working with a priest as an exorcist. True story, you know? There's a lot of people uh, who come from, um, one of my good friends did five tours in Vietnam as a Marine, came out and was a SWAT cop, undercover narcotics cop, special operations cop, for 17 years. What's he doing? Depossession, exorcism, and shamanic healing, you know? There's a reason for it. You know, and the reason is, is when you get used to living life and death and life and death decisions, it may help prepare you when you start dealing with, you know, things in the dark and the pool. It's also, in my belief system, part of the selection process that the creator, however you want to label that, puts certain people through, you know, and you either make it or you die. And when you've, you know, grown up spending most of your adult life doing that, I'm not saying that it makes it easier, but it might prepare you, you know, to help make you better, make better decisions when you're confronted with those choices. And you, and you take in your guidance that way. So with Dylan, you know, Dylan's a guy, special forces, you know, um, sandbox veteran who originally came to Marias because he was possessed. And he was possessed by the uh, ghost of a um, dead special forces soldier. And so as part of his healing, he worked with Marias, and they become friends. And, you know, they like to sit around, have a beer, joke, do all that stuff, go out and shoot guns. But, you know, he's kind of like um, Hawk to Marias' Spencer. You know, he's like the, he's the muscle guy. He's like the quiet guy in the background that takes care of business, that gets in and takes care of things, you know. Yeah. And I like him a lot. He's a good character. Yeah, yeah, he really did. Now that you mention it, he's a hawk-like character. And I've been saying Marias's name wrong, and I'm reading it wrong when I was reading the book. So, um, so Marias has has quite a girlfriend in Jolene, um, who is literally a goddess. Um, what's she the goddess of? How does that work? Well, you know, Marias is kind of a ladies' man, or he was until he met Jolene. You know, and for him, it's both. Uh, he is. He says he says it both jokingly, but also in all seriousness. You know, is that he he sees women as the goddess, as different avatars of like the divine feminine, in the same way that he's an avatar of like the divine masculine, and they rip on that. Plus, you know, um, Jolene's just smoking hot, dude. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, she's like. Oh, okay, wow, what a goddess, you know? Within that, you know, she is a wicked priestess, and, um, you know, she's a powerful psychic and intuitive in, in and of herself. And, you know, he refers to her that, he refers to her constantly as a goddess because in his belief system, she is an avatar. She is a, you know, portal for the uh, power of the divine feminine, which manifests itself in all kinds of ways as, as a goddess. So this this milieu that Marias inhabits, um, he sort of walks between his conscious and subconscious, um, and but it's it's not Eastern necessarily. Uh, there's there seems to be a blend of Eastern and Western philosophical and religious traditions. There's angels, uh, Michael, for instance, and uh, it's just this sort of glorious mishmash. Is there a rhyme or reason to this world, or is it uh, just all archetypes everywhere? There's, there's definitely a rhyme and reason to it, and the mishmash appearance in there is there for a reason. One of the things that happened in the 60s with the work of Michael Horner and Carlos Castaneda exploring shamanism was that um, they developed what they call the concept of before shamanism. Things that people, I think, miss when they talk about shamanism is they want to characterize it as religion. It's not religion. It's not religion at all. It's a spiritual 
technology that enables the practitioner to commune directly with the divine. And I use those words specifically. It's a technology. And so, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, there are people who are uh, shamanic practitioners who are Jewish, who are Catholic, who are Wiccan, who, you know, I won't say atheist, but non-practicing in any specific denomination. And they all use elements of poor shamanic practice to commune with the sacred whatever way on the behalf of other people. So the reason that there is such a mishmash in there is that in that, within that concept that, you know, you use this spiritual technology to commune with the sacred, all of the boundaries that separate, oh, well, I'm Roman Catholic, and I'm not going to talk to you because only Catholics can do exorcism, you know, despite the fact that every spiritual tradition in the world has a technology for removing troublesome spirits. You say, okay, well, and the Jewish uh, faith, you know, well, we have uh, the Archangel Mikael, and we have this, but, you know, we don't embrace this piece of that. One of the things about shamanic practice is, is really at its core, it kind of wants it, 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 it makes available the means to kind of put all those barriers down. I mean, if you all commune together in that, you know, you've got elements of all the different uh, religious practices, and they're all using within their little narrow boundaries, you know, descriptors that are talking about the same event or the same type of experience. So in that, you know, within the, you know, the world building in there, it gets, you know, way more interesting, a lot more complicated the, first, the, the more we follow the arc to subsequent books, and we kind of explore that world in it. But yeah, you know, that's, that's part of the reason, and the choice is a deliberate one. You know, you go between, you know, Wiccan practice to, you know, hardcore, um, I won't say hardcore, but definite Christian practice. You know, there'll be elements of um, the spirit of uh, Kabbalah and um, Jewish mysticism as well and subsequent things. And all of those things, it's like, this is kind of like the common thread is there is a spiritual technology that unites all of those. Yeah. Well, the, it seems like then the way that Marias... Um visualizes the other world sort of comes from the philosophy that he um, was influenced by in making him and somebody else might see it differently, for instance. Right, right. You know, I mean, and that's the whole point, you know, at at the at the core of it, what shamanic practice is about is it's about individual communion with the divine. You don't need a priest. You don't need a rabbi. You know, you don't need a bullock. You know, you don't need uh, someone to interpret that for you. You can go directly. You can learn to go directly. And everyone has it to a certain degree. Some are more gifted than others, just like anything else. Some are more willing to train and work harder and, and to go forth and do that. So, you know, there, there's that part of it. One of the interesting things that I found while researching is to go to uh, shamanism.org which is the website of um, the uh, Foundation for Shamanic Studies, they have a project with widespread shaman all over the world where they are literally mapping the other realms. You know, saying, okay, well, you know, here's the cave of lost souls, and this is where the lost children are, and this is the gate to hell, and this is the uh, middle world, and this is the upper world. And they're literally mapping it. And so you can go and you can see, wow, you know, a shaman from Siberia is describing the same thing that a shamanic practitioner in Berkeley, California is doing. So it's really, really interesting. And I mean, it's all graphic. Go and look at it. That's awesome. 
Well, one of the things there definitely is is reincarnation of souls, and Marias has not always been a good guy, right? He um, he's sort of atoning for some things he did in his past. That's an absolutely excellent reading, and it's something that comes out as like you know one of the continuing threads or spine of the narrative as you know the story of Marias and all his friends continues to unfold over more books is that, you know, in this book, like, yeah, he's a good guy. You know, he's got his flaws because this journey in this novel is all about him confronting a lot of those flaws and having to work through them and having to really go through literally hellish torment in order to kind of work through that. But in there, it's hinted at and, uh, you know, alluded to that he has got a past history where he wasn't just uh, a bad guy. He was like a seriously B with the capital, I mean, capital B, bad uh, guy in his past lives. And like you said, he's working on atoning for that. And uh, yeah, that's that's a really good reading because that's uh, exactly one of the themes that's kind of in there and that comes out. And, and you know, it's uh, I try to, in, in the writing of this, I want to keep it light. I want to have the humor and all that. But as, you know, the story continues to unfold, you know, it goes into some dark places. And, you know, Marias's history and his way of dealing with a lot of that past life stuff, how it literally comes back to haunt him, as it did in uh, this first book, is uh, it's a really rich vein to, um, to explore. Well, our bad guys in our world, the world that most of us see before us, um, is this group called the Cabal. Um, what, who are these guys? What makes them so insidious? Because they are. Well, you know, I think um, one of the quotes in the book is that it's kind of where the, it's the intersection of where dark sorcery and high technology and, you know, immoral government manipulation comes together. Kind of sounds like the headlines, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the, um, uh, the whole thing with, with the cabal, they're, they're uh, it's, it's kind of one of the junctures where the battle, the, the larger archetypal battle between dark and light takes place. And there you have a fusion of technology, and you have not just the technology of this world, but you have the technology, the spiritual technology, that's been handed down as magic or sorcery or you know whatever else you want to call it. And there's this place where all that stuff overlaps. Like, for instance, you know, if you dig into the science around remote viewing, you know, remote viewing, when you look at the original uh, training handbook, which was declassified a few years ago, the first chapter goes all the way back to Egypt and it talks about astral travel and out-of-body travel, you know? And, um, and this is in a military training manual. And uh, so there's this place where all of that stuff comes together. And one of the challenges is when you're exploring that is, you know, what is it being used for? You know, what is the intention behind it? Because shamanic practice is all about intention. The difference between a shaman and a sorcerer is intention. A shaman seeks to help and to facilitate. A sorcerer seeks power over, you know. They can be using the exact same tools, but what separates them is their intention. What do they intend to do? And that's the, that's the whole thing, you know, with the military, government, industrial complex, you know, that uh, that uh, we explore there, that's a place where, you know, dude, there's some scary stuff if you're thinking about uh, the power that you can, that can be wielded 
to be in the hands of people who are only interested in the power and don't care who gets eat up in the, in, in the interim. Hmm. So, and one of their weapons that they have are these, these clone bodies that, that demons inhabit. I thought that was incredibly cool. These, these, these bad guys. Um, and apparently they don't have any qualms about just, just making meat sacks for themselves. Yeah, and you know, dude, here's the thing that's really interesting. You talk about where science and technology is. Edgar Casey, in a lot of the uh, channelings and stuff that he did, the renowned psychic, um, talked about in Atlantis the fact that there were what we called sparked souls, and then there were unsparked. Sparked souls were those that actually had the life force that came from the creator, and that's you know what, what differentiates a human. But then you had these others that were created that were not sparked by the creator and didn't have the electromagnetic energy signature that adds up to a soul. So what they were is they were created essentially for pleasure, to, uh, to be laborers, to be workers, and all this kind of thing. So now if you fast forward and you take a look at the technology around human cloning, and then you look at the dramatic acceleration in terms of robotics, artificial intelligence, cognitive neuroscience, which is kind of the space that I live in with my company, and, um, you know, about creating artificial intelligence. And how do you then program a meat puppet, you know? I mean, dude, there's, you know, there's, there's government dollars being spent on doing just that, you know? Wouldn't it be so much easier if you could just do like they did in Star Wars and find yourself an ideal uh, uh, physical prototype and then take the... Um, the uh, algorithms that add up to the problem-solving capability of an extremely experienced special operator and just decant it into their head, you know? I mean, uh, John Scalzi does something kind of like that in his books uh, in The Old Man's War, and then uh, Richard Morgan does that a little bit in his Takashi Kovacs uh, series, you know? We talk about you take a, you know, genetically engineered body and then you decant the personality, the sum total of experiences and so on, into that to animate it. Or you create one. You create it with an artificial intelligence and then pump it in. And that's kind of what we talk about in, in the first opening of that. And again, it gets a lot more complex because what's interesting to me, besides the fact that the technology exists and it's coming around to do this, is it, it raises a really interesting moral and ethical question. You know, what is your responsibility? to a being that you can grow in a tank that is, you know, uh, to all appearances and genetically a human, and then you pump a program into that neurology that is generated by a computer and might be an amalgam of a number of uh, dead humans, you know, and pump it in and say, okay, well, we're going to give you the, uh, the neurological fat, um, patterns of Bruce Lee, and we're going to take the shooting capability of Brian Enos at his prime, and then we're going to take the tactical problem solving of Paul Howe, and, you know, we're going to put all that in there, and we'll throw in a little Albert Einstein when it comes to, you know, thinking out of the box for coming up with tactical solutions. And then you put that in a genetically engineered body. I mean, dude, you know, that's an interesting path to go down, you know? Yeah, one of the things that Mariah... Whatever their ultimate moral uh, uh, state, uh, 
Mariah certainly doesn't think that they're they're the same things as humans, and he he feels pretty justified in in spraying them all over the walls when he has to. Yeah, yeah, you know that there's that's true, and you know you have that scene with the wood chipper. I don't want to give too much people that, but you know about organic compost and all that. But uh, there is one point of that is that you know when he prays for them and he prays for them, you know he says, I don't know. I don't know if they got souls, you know, but children, not just to be on the safe side. You know, I'll pray for their passage to wherever they came from, you know, for them to go back. And so he has that. But yeah, man, I mean, he slaughters them by the, you know, bucket brigade falling. Well, they're trying to kill him. So um, there's a hell in this world, um, and it's, it seems sort of Dante-like um, with uh, you, you go through different tests on the way to the center. Um, can you kind of orient us on, on this shamanic hell in case we ever end up there and need to find a way out, which I suspect might be a problem. <laughs> well, just, yeah, just call for Mariah, Steve. You'll come get you. good at it. <laughs> may um, have to do that. <laughs> you might have to buy him a beer. I want his card. But, um, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it's funny. I was at this veteran thing uh, not long ago, and one of my friends is a crazy fighter pilot, Marine fighter pilot. And he's, you know, he's uh, very active in veteran stuff. And, you know, a lot of people at conference say, oh, thank you for your service. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, he had a T-shirt made, which is perfect, because when somebody comes up and says, oh, thank you for your service, he just opens it up, and the T-shirt says, you're welcome. Now buy me a beer. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So anyways, shamanic hell. All right, within the uh, shamanic tradition, depending on what native tradition, there may or may not be a version of hell. In the core shamanism belief, there are different areas, and that hell is essentially created by people to punish themselves. In the um, uh, shamanic mapping, if you will, there are places that if you were to walk in and look at it and go through, would look like Dante's Hell. And that's what, you know, I drew on that from, specifically from John Charty's translation of uh, the Divine Comedy and the uh, Inferno. And uh, the mapping of that, you know, I, I borrowed that for a couple of reasons because I have fun riffing on stuff. Part of it was from Rogers Zelazny's um, uh, descent into um, Hellmouth in uh, Lord of Light. Part of it was from Dante. And then uh, part of it is based on uh, shamanic practice and journeys into the world of lost souls. And so, um, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of the melange there. And I guess the way I get around it is that within shamanic tradition, you know, hell is something you create, you know, and it's something you really think about it. Well, you can manifest it. You can go there. Um, and the thing is, anything you can think of, somebody else can think of, and they can come there, and they can bring you back. Or they can, you know, guide you someplace else, you know, or they can go there and talk to you in case you want to bring back any messages, or you've changed your mind. So, you know, there's hope for you, Tony. <laughs> Well, I, actually, there's there's sort of a Christian version of that in uh, C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, I think it is, where the, the people take the bus trip to, to purgatory, and uh, hell is created by people. God didn't throw you there. You make it for yourself, and you decide to stay there. So what are you working on? What's next? Getting ready to go to Israel. I got a, a consultation job over there in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. 
with the police over there. I've got, uh, uh, I just hired my a couple of PhDs for the research and development uh, portion of my company. And uh, so I got a bunch of that stuff. Like I said, you know, 65, 70 hours a week on uh, my company business and then writing. You know, I just set out a block. You know, um, if and when uh, Jim and Tony are ready to move on that, then I'll set up and I'll schedule a block. After writing nine novels, I know what it takes to get one done. I know exactly how much time I need each day to get to a first draft and then to do my second draft and then to get it off and do that. I do a lot of work with DARPA, and um, I've got some really interesting insights in the whole uh, autonomous robotic warfare and then a human cognitive interface with that, you know, in other words, how you create uh, robots that directly interact with the brain. A lot like, you know, remember um, Fred Saberhagen's great books on the, uh, uh, the Berserker series and that, who was it that did the Bolos? Um, uh, Keith Lahmer. Was that Fred, was that Saberhagen? That was Lahmer. Keith Lahmer, yeah, yeah. Bolos, you know, yeah, the intelligence tanks and all that. And that kind of stuff, right. because, you know, we're, we're there. I mean, we're already there, you know, and uh, the evolution of drone warfare and then the work on direct cognitive interface, you know, um, where pilots and drone operators are able to conduct operations specifically by being wired into um, the remote control of the drone. And, I mean, we're already there. And so it raises some really fascinating ethical, moral dilemmas, you know, about how you, uh, well, you know, I'll give you a concrete example. One of my um, friends and professional acquaintances is the head of essentially the uh, U.S.'s um, Ethical Guideline Development Committee for the military. He also wrote, like, the guideline book for, you know, uh, ethical use of torture or enhanced interrogation techniques. And he is working within the area of um, robotics, autonomous warfare um, machines, and uh, that kind of interface. So, you know, here's an interesting ethical class moral uh, solution. You have a human being who is wired to interact with a supercomputer that is capable of making tactical decisions faster than the human being. And that interface then controls a swarm or a number of individual uh, robotic killing machines. So they go in, blah, 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 and they kill a bunch of civilians. Who's guilty? Well, uh, that's a good question. One could apply uh, the old Aristotelian logic that is if you, if you drink the, the wine and it gets you drunk and you kill somebody, it's still your fault because you knew what could happen. Or... Maybe not. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've got a human to exercise moral constraints, but he can't think as fast as the supercomputer, which is driving the fight. Yeah. So, you know, whose fault is it then? Is it the guy who's wired in? Is it the programmers on the supercomputer? Is it the artificial intelligence that's running the supercomputer? Is there a malfunction in the field? You know, is there a failure in the rules of engagement? You know, dude, there's a, there, that's some rich territory to dig around in. That sounds very cool. Uh, the book we're talking about now is The Sword of Michael by Marcus Wynn. It's a wonderful contemporary fantasy action-adventure thriller with uh, shamanic journeying, and it's, it's a one-of-a-kind sort of read, and it's now available at booksellers everywhere. Marcus, thanks very much for being with us. Absolutely, Tony. Thanks so much. You know, tell everybody it's got sex, drugs, rock and roll, shamanism, <laughs> demons, 
and uh, the good guys, too. <laughs> Here is Bronson Pinchot with part 36 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup for what's coming up. It's the 1930s in America, but this is an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some do not. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse. These are known as the Grimnor Knights. If the Grimnor are to be believed, the evil forces of magic introduced into the world have reached a peak, and the apocalyptic finale for humanity may be about to begin. Maddie's improved hearing easily picked up the gunshots. Three hundred yards away, lights started coming on inside the house. The scout he'd sent to disable their alarm spells had failed, but it was a worthwhile sacrifice. He'd been surprised that his men had made it this close to the property before alerting the Grimmies, and he was thankful for the fog coming off the ocean. The Imperium men around him tensed, ready for action. He'd gathered nearly thirty men for this operation. Most of them were new recruits from San Francisco or Los Angeles, desperate suckers willing to risk their lives in exchange for gold or a touch of magic. He'd given them a pep talk, a gun, and promises of the chairman's eternal gratitude. He figured they'd take terrible casualties, but they were expendable. He planned on letting the Grimdoir use up their power on the chumps first so he wouldn't endanger any of his more valuable assets. If any lived, that would prove they were strong and therefore worthy of further training. Get em, boys, he whispered. To their credit, most of them didn't hesitate. They rose from the bushes, some screaming as they charged the house in a terrible impersonation of a proper Imperium battle cry, naively believing that the single kanji of vitality he and Yutaka had carved on them would make them bulletproof. It would make them tougher, but that wasn't near the same thing. The smarter ones actually took the time to use cover and aim their guns at the lighted windows as they approached. He turned to his second wave. He'd kept two shadow guards, both travelers, for himself and sent the rest with Toshiko for the raid on the Peace Ray. He didn't like splitting his forces, but he'd promised the chairman something epic, and he always kept his promises. Now it looked like he was down to just one. He glared at the little Jap traveler. Get in there. Find Pershing, I want him alive, then report back. Hi! His black hood dipped in a quick bow and he disappeared. Mahdi turned to Yutaka. Send your scouts, I want that Tesla device. His companion was already working, channeling his power to summon creatures. If it wasn't for the possibility that Pershing had that device, he'd just use the peace ray to melt this whole peninsula into molten lava and save the men. If it wasn't there, he'd pull back and then blast them. 
If he killed all the Grimmies first, he'd burn the place down the old-fashioned way, then have Toshiko use the peace ray on the Presidio and San Francisco. She had both sets of coordinates, just in case. Another pair of iron guards had arrived that morning. He'd kept Hiroyasu, figuring that his particular scary-ass power might come in handy, but he'd decided to send his partner along with the larger group attacking the peace ray. He didn't trust that shadow guard dame to not fuck up his mission. Everyone knew the iron guard were the best of the best. Hell, he could probably take all of these grimdoir by himself. Except for Jake, he's strong like me, he caught himself thinking, and then quickly dismissed that as a weak thought. He still hadn't decided what he was going to do with him yet, but Maddie found that he was kind of looking forward to the challenge. It had been a while since he'd squared off against anyone he'd considered a challenge. They'd never been real tight. Jake had always been the know-it-all, always telling him that they weren't no better than regular folks. He'd put up with Jake always defending the normals, and all he'd gotten for it was a mangled face. Some little part in the back of his mind kept saying the idea of burning his brother with a peace ray should have been troubling. But the more he thought on it, he didn't find that the idea of killing Jake upset him at all. In fact, Jake was the last vestige of his old, weak life. Taking him out would be like cutting that last chain that was keeping him down. He checked his pocket watch. He'd enchanted the glass surface with a direct link to Toshiko. From the view, he could tell they were eliminating the soldiers in complete silence. Beneath the glass, he saw the ticking hands and knew that they were well ahead of schedule. Impies in the tree line to the south. I took an owl over them, Lance bellowed as he limped down the second floor balcony, now thankfully, fully clothed, with bandoliers of ammunition crossing his torso. Kill the lights. Then he jerked back as the window across from him shattered. He calmly went to one knee to avoid any more stray rounds. Someone turned the lights off as Fay crouched down next to Lance. The big man, Mr. Sullivan, came walking up behind her, surprisingly quiet, with an enormous, funny-looking rifle in his hands. He'd put on a brown canvas vest with lots of pockets and had a huge backpack over one shoulder. It looked like it weighed a ton, but she had to remind herself that weight didn't matter to someone like him. Delilah was right behind him, holding a short gun with a drum magazine on it. How many? Sullivan asked, squinting into the patchy fog. Faye had to remind herself that most folks couldn't see in the dark like she could. At least two dozen, maybe more, Lance answered. He closed his eyes and took back control of the owl. They're charging. Sullivan just grunted in response, moved up next to the broken window, leaned around and started shooting. The rifle was loud as he cranked off two or three rounds at a time, shell casings flying out right under his cheek. Lance popped up, shouldered his Winchester, and fired. There were more gunshots coming from downstairs as the other grim noir piled it on. Holes appeared in the walls around them. Plaster flew past Faye's face as she crawled down the landing. Lance rolled away, swearing up a storm, as Sullivan calmly drew back, yanking a new magazine out of his vest. Delilah reached down, grabbed Faye by the back of her nightshirt, and dragged her down the carpet like she was a naughty puppy. Get behind something solid, Delilah ordered as she hurled Faye down the hallway. Now! She scrambled behind a marble statue of a fat man holding a blimp, but it exploded into dust and she yelped as the fragments pelted her. 
Faye crawled further down the hall and fell through a doorway. Everything was breaking or shattering, and she decided that the second floor was definitely not the place to be. Faye thought ahead, realized that the hundreds of glaring bits of danger were bullets, picked an empty spot, and appeared in the entryway. Mr. Browning and Mr. Garrett were both at the front door, shooting into the night. She got behind the piano. Out of the way, Heinrich bellowed as he charged past her, green metal can in each hand. He dropped the cans next to a piece of furniture covered in a lace cloth and potted plants. The plants crashed to the floor as he ripped the cloth away, revealing a huge metal object on three legs. It was so big that at first Faye wondered why that mean German would be messing with a piece of farm equipment at a time like this. And then she realized that the huge thing was a gun. Francis caught up a second later, his rifle bouncing around on a sling over his back. He opened a cover on top of the big gun as Heinrich opened one of the metal cans and pulled out a linked belt of the biggest gleaming brass cartridges she'd ever seen. A second later, Francis yanked a huge handle back and forth and grabbed onto the spade grips on the back end. He swiveled it toward the window. The barrel was as big around as the pipes that fed the Vieira's milk tank and covered in a metal shroud with holes in it, and Faye instinctively knew to cover her ears. This was gonna be loud. There was a brilliant strobe of fire coming from the front of the house and a sound like thunder. Maddie cursed. His enhanced vision enabled him to see his men exploding into clouds of meat as the huge bullets passed right through the trees they were using for cover. The damned grimoire had a ma deuce. He thought about bringing a mortar, but he'd hesitated, worried that if the Tesla device was inside, he'd accidentally damage it. Yutaka. The other iron guard appeared instantly at his side. Anything from your spirits? No device yet he answered, grimacing as he concentrated on the invisible creatures he'd brought up from a lower plane. The spirits say there are nine Grimnoir and a number of weak summoned. The house is so covered in spells that it obscures their senses. Shit. Maddie glanced at his watch. Toshika was inside the Peace Ray control center, slaughtering everyone. No alarms yet. He still had time, but not enough to be dicking around. Hiroyasu, get your ass up here. The other iron guard approached deferentially. Maddie didn't like the reedy little man. He was physically weak. He'd only been able to sustain a few kanji brands, but the sheer menace of his power made him a valuable weapon of the Imperium. Do your thing. I will need a few minutes, he answered with that effeminate voice that just pissed Maddie off even more. Make it quick. He needed Hiroyasu's power now. He needed to throw something else at the Grimmies, and those damn shadow guards were nowhere to be seen, and he had to assume that the first one was probably dead. Yutaka, call off your spirits. Bring out the Bull King. Yutaka let go of the lesser demons and turned all of his considerable power to pulling up the greatest beast he could possibly summon. Maddie leaned back against the tree and lit a cigar. If the stupid Grim Noir wanted to play rough, he'd show them rough. Sullivan stepped back from cover, eyes searching the mist-shrouded tree line through the ragged remains of the window slats. There was a muzzle flash. 
He raised the bullpup bar, aimed at the spot and cranked off a burst. He moved to the side before they could return fire, heading for the next window. The house-shaking thunder coming from below told him that one of Browning's M250 caliber machine guns had been set up. From what he'd heard, they were awe-inspiring weapons, and the terrible mess it was making of the little forest was proof of that. Great plumes of dirt appeared wherever it hit, trees shattered into splinters, and men died. The thunder stopped. The normal fire tapered off. He couldn't see anything else moving in the woods, so he took the chance to reload. Someone downstairs, probably one of the younger ones, let out with a whooping cheer. I think we put a hurtin' on them. Delilah appeared from around the corner, smoking Thompson in her hand. She was nervous. Lance peered over the windowsill. At some point, his hat had been removed from his head by a bullet and blood was trickling down his scalp. Hang on. He closed his eyes, concentrating. We killed a mess of them. Rester hunkered down. There's a group hanging back behind cover. He's summoning something. Oh, hell. Sullivan stepped back, leaned over what was left of the railing, and shouted downstairs, Demons incoming. Not demons, just one. Lance bolted up from the floor and started shoving more shells into his Winchester. But it's the biggest damn thing I've ever seen. There was a roar from the woods, so deep and powerful that Sullivan could feel it vibrate his back teeth. He thought back to the hoof prints and mighty claw mark in Utah and knew that if this was the same summoner, then this was about to get real bad. He turned to Delilah. Whatever happens, stay behind me. Shut up, Jake, she answered with false bravado. I've seen these things before. He gripped the bar harder and checked his power. Not like this, you haven't. A huge shadow moved in the shadowed woods, crashing through the trees. A few of the surviving attackers screamed as they struggled to get out of its way. A sliver of moonlight revealed something at least ten feet tall, blocky and misshapen, before it disappeared back into the fog. Delilah gasped in shock. It came out of the thicket then, driving itself forward with its hooves and two long arms that ended in three eviscerating claws, snorting and shaking its bull-like head, tearing up chunks of turf, angry at being ripped from its home and knowing that it couldn't go back until it fulfilled its master's wishes. It stopped at the edge of the trees, pawing the ground and smelling the air until its four red eyes, bright with licking fire, turned to stare right through them. The greater summoned opened its mouth and bellowed its fury, flaming spit spraying in a wide arc as it slammed its hooves down rhythmically and prepared to charge. I seen beggar, Sullivan said. The demon came at them. The fifty opened up a second before the rest of them, a line of glowing tracers zipping past, but the demon launched itself high into the air, giant wings unfurling from its back as it rose. It sailed upward as the fifty tracked up after and finally into it, huge bullets striking and tearing off chunks of toughened flesh until the machine gun finally ran out of elevation. The demon seemed suspended for a split second, hanging before the moon, but it descended directly at them, roaring, streaming tendrils of smoke from where it had been hit. 
It was heading right for the balcony, and it would tear the house down around them when it hit. Sullivan could hear the wings snapping like a tattered sail as it neared the end of its ballistic arc, and he had an idea. Throwing the bar over his shoulder, he grabbed his power. Don't fail me now. He ran toward the broken window, automatically doing the math. Jake! Delilah screamed after him as he put his boot on the windowsill and launched himself into space. Pull. Mass. Density. Velocity. His power knew what to do. The demon's eyes narrowed as it dove, claws thrown wide, seeking to rend his head from his body. Sullivan extended his hands just before impact and spiked with all his might. Gravity suddenly multiplied twentyfold and swatted the demon from the sky, snapping its wings and pulling it straight down as if it had been grabbed by a great invisible hand. Sullivan sailed past in midair as the creature jerked violently downward. He barely had time to use his power before hitting the sidewalk. The concrete cracked as he struck and rolled away, physically unharmed. But with his power scattered, he came right back to his feet, unslinging the bar as he turned. The demon had hit the fountain, crushing the blimp statue to bits. Water was squirting from broken pipes and nothing moved in the wreckage. Sullivan didn't know if that sudden impact would have put a greater summoned down or not, so he approached cautiously, but not cautiously enough. The demon exploded from the wreckage with lightning speed and backhanded him across the yard. That was part 36 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa. As read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and an all-expenses-paid shamanic journey to the upper branches of the World Tree Yggdrasil, where all the best restaurants are located, for Marcus Wynn, author of contemporary fantasy thriller The Sword of Michael. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy storytelling. Keep reaching for the stars. We're Santa's elves in the workshop, making lots of toys for good girls and boys. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas, everybody! Merry Christmas!